Well, we have uh, good news, and we have bad news, and we have good news. So the good news is more and more of you are returning. We've noticed since uh, the beginning of September, more people are coming. Uh, of course, the bad news is, uh, due to our COVID restrictions, that we are starting to max out our room here. And so we want people to be part of us. And uh, so that's the bad news, not that we want you to be part of us, but that we're filling out the restrictions. And so we have set up a overflow. Uh, so if you come and we're full here, we have an overflow. But I'll be honest with you, I, we as a staff aren't really thrilled with the idea of the overflow. It's kind of like, I know you think we might as well stay home and watch it on TV. Well, kind of, but you get to be here with people. So we thought, we got to come up with something better than just an overflow with, you know, the TV and sound out there. We're going to work on that. But while we do, we're going to have an overflow. And of course, when the restrictions stop and we can all come back in the same room, that's what we'll be doing. But until then, uh, we have an overflow and as a yet-to-be-termined better idea. So there's a prayer request for you right there. Give those guys some good idea. And, uh, but uh, uh, we will be doing an overflow so you don't have to be turned away. Now, this is a great opportunity for love. Now, I'm talking to all of you now. Because uh, our natural tendency is, I want to be in the room. But for you to, in, to initiate and to choose to say, I'll be one of the people that sits in the overflow. I'll, be, I'll, I'll sit in the overflow. So other people can in, be in the room, and our guests and visitors can have better seats in the room. And I thought, well, that, that'll be about 20, 25 people go, I'm on it. And I thought, hold on, no, 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 no. Let's engage the whole family, because love is when we initiate and do for others what is good, even if sometimes we don't like it or it's not what we want. And so I would say, everybody here, every single one of you, you have an opportunity to act in love by choosing one Sunday a month when you and your family will sit in the overflow, just one a month. Because if we all did that, it would cease to be an issue. So I'm challenging you to love your brothers and sisters with the love of Christ by a very simple act. Choosing one Sunday a month will be in the overflow. Now, if we come up with the, if the, our great idea works, that overflow won't be there long. But until then, I'm challenging you to not think about what you want for yourself, but to think about other people. And it's such a simple act. One Sunday a month. I'll choose, or my family, or we as a couple, or I as an individual will go out and sit in the overflow. Okay, you got it? You got the challenge? So now talk to God. Choose right now. Which Sunday? First Sunday of the month, second, third, fourth? Do it right now. It's not that hard. It's an act of love. You don't need to pray about this one. Now, let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, uh, we are so thankful that you initiated love for us that you stepped to the cross, came to this world and then stepped to the cross for us. Not because it was for your good, but for ours. And I pray you would grow us as a church in love as we sacrifice for our brothers and sisters, some we don't even know. Help us to grow in unity and grow in love for one another. And now as we begin this service, and we uh, begin this series, rather, and God, we, this is a series that's been on my heart. I think your spirit has been putting it there for a long time. And so I ask that it would be your voice speaking to your people, not my voice. Uh, 
that through the words that I speak and the studying that I do and the presentation that they'll hear you, not me. And that your voice and your love and your closeness and your calling and your correction, all this will come because people sense you here speaking. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you've ever come to Springvale on any regularity, you will, you will notice we say here things like, you need to become a follower of Jesus. Or you need to follow Jesus. Or Jesus calls you to follow him. You'll hear that phraseology, that idea of following Jesus often here. But that raises a question, what, do, what in the world do we mean by follow Jesus? I mean, it's easy to say, it's a nice slick uh, saying and phrase, and it's biblical, Jesus said, come follow me. But what exactly do we mean when we say follow Jesus? When I was, uh, when, not when, well, Crystal and I, when we were raising our kids, decided that we were going to be a ski family. So we took our money and time, and when we could, we would go skiing all over Ontario and other places. We would go skiing so that we could do something as a family that we all enjoyed and that would keep us together as a family. When my middle son was about eight-ish, I would say about eight, we were on a fairly good-sized hill, and uh, he came up to... Uh, me and said, hey, dad, follow me. And I said, sure. Now, he started going down this run, and I was following him, and then phew, into the woods he went. Now, at best, I'm an average skier. I'm really tall, which means my skis are long. I'm an average skier, and I'm at least 200 pounds, at least 200 pounds. And if you don't know anything about skiing, the heavier you are, the faster you go. And so my little eight-year-old who's whipping through the trees, follow me, dad, and I'm dumb enough to follow him. I went into the trees and I was, and it started to get steep and I thought, I'm gonna die in here. <laughs> and so I had a one, I was in, and I couldn't get, I had to get back out. And so I, I, I thought, what am I going to do? And it occurred to me, he, this, he's, he's getting along fine. So I'm going to follow him. And when he leans on one ski, I'll lean on the same ski. When he pizzas his skis to slow down, I'll pizza my skis. When he do, hits a jump and does a little hop, I'll do the little hop. And when he does a slide stop to slow down, I'll do the slide stop. And I got through. It wasn't pretty. Remember, I'm an average skier. It wasn't pretty, but I didn't get body checked by a ski, uh, tree. I was okay. I got out. And I said, I'll never follow you again. But that's what it means to follow. It means to do what the person you're following does. And in this case, it means to do what Jesus does and to do what he commands us to do. Because Jesus, one of the great uh, examples of leadership or one of the qualities of a great leader is they don't ask anybody to do what they wouldn't do. And Jesus has done everything he commands us to do. And so we, if we're following Jesus, we are doing what we saw him do in scriptures, and we are doing what he commands us to do in scriptures. So following Jesus is just another way to say, obey Jesus. Obey him. 
Now, part of the art of obeying Je- or following Jesus is learning from Scripture what to do in certain circumstances and seeking Him. Because not sometimes it's pretty obvious. Like today, we're going to learn, but don't murder anyone. Wow, that doesn't take a lot of seeking God on. But then there's other situations. What do I do in this conflict? How do I handle this situation? What would Jesus do with this? And, and, and we have to seek him. But it basically means to follow Jesus means to obey Jesus. Now, Jesus outlined and made clear what he means by that in one of his most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and goes all the way through to Matthew chapter 7. And in chapter 5, a couple years ago, I spoke on the very first part, the first 12 verses, in which you find the Beatitudes, which are eight statements, principle statements, that describe what the kingdom of God is like. And so he, 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 if you wonder about those, you can go on to our archive and you can get those sermon series because Jesus outlines the principles of all he's going to say following this. And now I'm going to pick up that sermon series I left off then, and now we're going to get into the next part of this sermon series, and it begins in chapter 5 of Matthew in verse 13. And he says, now you, speaking to the people, this is Jesus speaking to the people that are listening to him, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. Now he's using a metaphor. You're not really salt, right? We know that is a metaphor, and what's he mean by that? So he explains it a bit. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So the people listening understood everything Jesus was saying. They know that, that salt did two things. It preserved, and it also helped people gain a taste for the food that they were eating. We still use salt for those purposes today. And so Jesus said, you are to be in your culture and in this world, you are to preserve, not the culture. Our job is not to preserve culture. Our job is to preserve an understanding and knowledge of God. That when people see us, they see God. Because if we don't preserve an understanding of God and the truth of it, who will? And then you're supposed to provide a thirst, cause a thirst in people for God. You're salt. Help people see God and be thirsty for God. Now in the context of this whole series, you're gonna hear this phrase over and over again. When we obey Jesus, people will see Jesus. That's what he's saying. You're salt. Go out and obey. Follow me. Then you'll preserve the knowledge of God for people, and you'll create a thirst in them as you obey. Then he uses another metaphor. He said, not only are you salt, you're the light of the world. And now he he, kind of uses this light. He gives two two, metaphors. Pictures of it. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. So when I was in Israel, uh, um, almost every ancient city, almost all of them, I I, I can say 99% of them, are all built on a hill. They're all built on a big mound. And because 
in ancient times when these cities were built, the number one issue was not water. They could travel for water. The number one priority when you built a town was put it where it was safest because you might be attacked by another town or another army. And so it's a lot harder to run uphill to attack a wall and get over it and through it than it is on a flat ground. So they would always build on steep hills, mounds. And so the cities were always high. They were always up. And so if you were walking along a road or in a field at night, you could always tell where the city was because the light was up there. It wasn't there, hidden by the trees. It was always high. And you could always know your way to the city at night when you couldn't see because you could always see the light. You're the light. I don't know my way to God. Oh, if I keep my eye on that person who claims to be a follower of God, I will see my way to God. When we obey Jesus, people see Jesus. And then he uses another aspect of light, and he goes, oh, by the way, you know, when you light a light, um, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it in the stand to give light to everyone in the house in the same way. So it's just a restating in a different words the same metaphor. You don't light a light and then put a, a bucket over it, or you don't turn the lights on in your house and then cover them all with um, material that blocks the light. Of course not. You put the light up so everybody can see. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, Peter was here listening to this. And several decades later, Peter writes a book to Christians. And he, it's thought by thought, he quotes this, but not maybe word by word, but certainly the, the impact of what Jesus spoke is there. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says he's dealing with people that are suffering because they're Christians, and he said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's a whole aspect of this that Jesus doesn't even cover is that Peter says, you live your life in obedience and even though they accuse you of doing wrong, even though they write you off, when Jesus comes, then your acts will become the light for them and will be the means of Jesus dealing with people that have rejected him. Your actions now, your obedience now may not have impact right now. It may be in the future when Jesus comes back and he points and they say, well, you never told me anything about you. And they point, remember John, remember Mary, remember Francine, you remember Mike? Remember when this happened to them and how they responded? That was me in their life. So you have an opportunity not only to invest in the lives of people today, but you have the opportunity to invest in the glory of God when he returns. When you obey. And when I obey. I'm a part of a renewal group. Uh, four of us. Uh, we get together and we are seeking God for renewal in our own lives, as well as praying for renewal in Springville. 
And uh, we are following through a book that's helping us understand how we do that with one another. And the author of the book was saying uh, that in our world today, there's this hope that everything is eventually going to get better. The hope that that things will improve, that our own personal lives will get better, and our country will get better, and our world will get better. There's this underlying hope, and that's why uh, our world uh, carries this hope, because uh, that was the hope, that's a Christian doctrine. That's, That's the return of Jesus. He will come, and he will change this world. He will make it far better. No tears, no crying, no sorrow, no pain, no death. That is a distinctly Christian doctrine as opposed to Eastern mysticism and other world religions. It is a belief that Jesus would make this world better. During the Renaissance, uh, our culture began to move away from belief in God and God. And so so our culture has kind of taken Jesus and God out of that, but kept the belief. And our culture believes, you watch now, when you watch news, you will pick this, you'll see this very clearly. That, oh, if we just had better education, if we just had better government, and we just had uh, more health care, if we just had justice, if we had better courts, if we would spread out the wealth. Now, all of those things I mentioned are very good things, and the scripture tells us to do them. But remember, our culture has taken God out of the picture, and now if we just have these things, if we can make them happen, we will have a better life on earth and we will come to true fulfillment and happiness. But without God. And then comes the personal side. That's our culture, but then personally, I want a better life, and I want things to be better, and I want them to be better for my my family. I want them to be better for my children. I want them to be better for me, and so I am going to pursue that which I think will bring me true fulfillment, true happiness, meaning in life, and a relational connection with other people that brings that sense of happiness, and so therefore, I will pursue what I think will give me that happiness, and hence the pursuit. Once you take God out of a system, you've got to find other things to pursue. And so, hence the pursuit of sex. Why do you think our culture is so full, all our media is so full of sex? Because underneath it is the belief that if I truly find good sexual experience, I will find fulfillment. That's what gives you life and joy and enjoyment in life. And you'll feel fulfilled. Or other people, it's money. If I, if I just get enough money, I'll truly be happy. I'll, I'll have what I need and what I want, and then I'll be happy. Or power, if I, if I just control the organization I'm in, and I'm the guy, I'm the girl, I'm the one they come to, I'm the one making the decision, I have power, I will feel good. If I have accomplishments, achievements, if I can build this business up, if I can be a, a, a great pastor, if I can, if I can you know, be whatever it is that, that I can achieve in, I, I will find true fulfillment and meaning. See, we pursue these things. People, if I can just find the right partner, well, then I'll be happy and fulfilled. Of course, there's a plethora of testimonies of people who said, I tried that, and while all those are good things, they can't replace God, and they can't truly provide fulfillment and meaning and relational connection with the Almighty, with the eternal 
And so we were in this group discussing that, and we hit upon this passage and realized that's why Jesus tells us to go out and follow him, to obey him, because when they see our good works, when they see us obeying Jesus, all of a sudden we become salt and we become light in the world when they're ready to hear it and to see it. When they see the results of you obeying Jesus, the joy that comes in your life, the fulfillment, the way you handle difficult times and painful times and how you come through it, the hope that you have when you're facing a bad medical uh, uh, prognosis or the death of somebody you love or something that was taken from you and they watch you not get bitter but to, to pursue Christ in that and the things that come out of that, it becomes salt and light to them. And so the pursuit of Jesus, the way of Jesus, this is the way to obey. And when we obey Jesus, people see Jesus. And when people see Jesus and turn to him, their lives are changed forever. They find faith and reconciliation in God. Now, one of the things that that people said of Jesus when he was around, especially the religious leaders, was he would, Jesus was teaching them not to obey the law. And if you, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice when the religious leaders come on the scene, they're always trying to trick him around the law. They want him to say something that is against the law of God to prove that he therefore is not a prophet of God and not who he says he was because if you were, you would never counter the law of God. And so they always claim that Jesus was teaching people not to follow the law. Remember, they're, they're walking and they're, they're harvesting on the Sabbath. They're eating like grains. Oh, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. You clearly can't be from God. Oh, you healed on the Sabbath. You clearly can't be from God. And over and over and over, they were putting them in these situations. And so Jesus is going to answer that because he's saying, now you obey me. He's not saying obey God. He's saying obey me. Now we, on the inside... We all know that Jesus is God, so to obey Jesus is to obey God, right? But they didn't believe that. And so he's saying, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Hey, I'm not telling you to ignore or not pay attention to God's word. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I'm telling you, what I'm calling you to do is a total fulfillment of the law of God, the truth of God. Not, I'm not telling you to go somewhere else. I'm telling you to go back to God. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Can't get clear on that. I'm for God. I'm for the law. But whoever practices and now here's the key, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. Practices and teaches, which are just synonyms for the word obey. For I tell you, 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people that were listening, and we don't have Pharisees and teachers of the law today, so we don't get the impact of that. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law were the people that everybody considered the most fastidious in following the law. They were the people that went out of their way, that gave their whole life to obedience to the law. And Jesus just says, and if your, your righteousness, if your rightness with God doesn't surpass the Pharisees and the teachers' law, you, you won't enter the kingdom. And they'd be like, well then, well, how can anybody get in? But the problem Jesus had with the religious leaders was not that they thought of obeying the law, is they didn't understand what the law meant. In fact, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 15, I think it is, I didn't mark it here, so give me a second. Matthew chapter 15. Is it on the screen, Matthew 15? Apparently not. So verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. And then later on he said, blessed are you... um, Okay, I lost the passage, but this is what it says. You'll have to believe me on this. Matthew 15, you can go find it when you have time. I don't have time right now. Jesus says, hey, it's not what comes into your body that defiles you, what's come out. And then later on he goes, it's, it's the adultery, the murder, the hatred, the bitterness, the malice, the envy that breeds in the heart and comes out. And Jesus' problem with the religious leaders wasn't that they thought obeying the law was right, was they did not understand the law. They thought it was just all externals, and they made 600 and some odd laws that they had to obey, but they were all man-made, and they were all about external actions. And Jesus says, obeying the law, yes, it's about Uh, external obedience, but it's way more than that because it starts in the heart. And now Jesus is going to spend the rest of this Sermon on the Mount explaining to us how the law of God first deals with the heart and then once something changes your heart, it affects how you obey outwardly. Now, I need to put a disclaimer in here. No, more of a warning, really. If you come for this series, I guarantee you, in one of these sermons, you are going to be uncomfortable. I'd even say some of you are going to be downright angry. And some of you are going to leave Springville. Because Jesus doesn't pull punches on this. By God's grace, I won't either. I hope I can do it in a loving way. But some of the things he talks about in here run cross-cultural to things we do and say in our lives today. Practices that we hold. You might want to save yourself some trouble and just ex- like kind of go to another church for the next few months. Because I'm telling you, it's uncomfortable, this passage. But if your heart is to grow and get closer to Jesus, even if it means him pointing out some things, then you're going to, f- you're going to grow. 
But you're not going to be the same as a result of this. You're either going to reject what Jesus says and say, I'm not doing that. Or you're going to lean into it and say, yeah, I'm guilty here, or this needs to change in my life, and now Jesus help me. It's going to be one or the other. It's going to be really difficult to just kind of stand in the middle and do nothing. So Jesus is going to spend the next few chapters talking about what it means to truly obey the law of God, to obey his word from the heart. And he starts with murder. Now that would be applicable to all of us, right? You have heard it said, verse 21, You've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, you have heard it said is a rabbinic way to bring out an idea that is later going to be contradicted. And the teachings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders was definitely don't murder anybody. But do you think that's all there is to it? That that's all God cares about between you and another person is just don't murder them. That's like sending your kids out of the house say, I don't care what you do, just don't kill each other. I think they need a little more guidance than that. I think you'll care what other things that they do. Where's your brother? Oh, I beat the crap out of him and left him in the playground. Oh, that's okay. Is he alive? Yeah, okay, don't worry about it as long as you don't murder him. Is that enough? Is it enough that you just don't murder somebody? Is that enough? Is that all it takes to please God? Jesus said, you've heard it, and you think that's what the law of God says, but the law of God's much more than that. In fact, listen to what the law of God says, but I tell you, but, now there's the contrast, you've heard it said, don't murder, and you've left it at that, but I'm gonna tell you, this is what the law of God really means in your life. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now notice anger is an internal thing. And yes, there is a righteous anger. But come on. What percentage of our anger is really, truly righteous? When you're angry at somebody in your spirit and you reject them and you speak bad about them, because that's what anger produces, and you attack them, that's a problem with God. And anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court, and anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Racha is, is, you you idiot? That kind of attitude. And, And fool is, you're worthless. And any time, it's not that Jesus is saying, just don't say these words and you're okay. It's any time your heart has that kind of pride in it that you uh, eviscerate another person by your words or you treat them with bitterness in your attitude or you demean their, their identity and who they are in light of who God made them to be. Do you remember how Jesus treated the prostitute? I mean, you got the holiest of all people to ever step on this world, sinless, Jesus, and they bring a prostitute caught in adultery, which by the way, by the law, required death, and brought it to him. Did, you, did he demean her? 
Your life is a stinking mess. You should be ashamed of yourself. Did, were they the words that came out of it? No. He said, I, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He had, he had grace and truth. And when in your heart you don't have grace anymore toward people, God cares about that. You're not okay with God just because you didn't murder them. How you feel in your heart toward another person will determine and dictate, Jesus, how you act in your attitudes, your behavior, your words. And the law of God says, God really looks here first. He cares. You can't keep being bitter and angry and unforgiving toward people and it not impact your relationship with God. You can't. It's unrighteous. It's wrong. Is it painful? Uh Uh-huh. Are you hurt by other people? Mm Mm-hmm. Are some things so grievous that if you told people they'd be shocked? Uh Uh-huh. But that, even that, does not give you the right to treat another person with disdain, hatred, uh, to undercut who they are, to be proud toward them, to be bitter toward them, it's not acceptable. The law of God isn't just about, oh, I didn't murder anybody. It's about, do you love people? Now, it's funny, this idea of, well, I didn't murder anybody. I've come across that a lot of times. So I used to teach uh, at Summit Bible College. It was a, it, for 11 years, they uh, did a one-year Bible course up at Muskoka Baptist Conference, um, or Muskoka Bible Conference now. Uh, it's a camp up north in the Muskokas uh, that people go to, it's a Christian camp. But they started a Bible school, and I was brought in. You t- they teach in one week. They bring teachers in to teach one week of classes, and then they do all these other kind of cool stuff, and then they have another teacher come in for one week. So I, I was brought in. And for 11 years, I did uh, evangelism course. And so I would teach them about evangelism. Evangelism is basically telling other people about Jesus and that his death, through his death and resurrection, you can have reconciliation with God and forgiveness of sins. And I thought, it's not enough for me just to teach about it. I want them to actually do it. And so I had a couple of practices that they had to write letters to friends and, and they, had to, they had to, you can tell how old it was, that they wrote letters to friends and they, they, uh, uh, they had to you know, reach out to different people. But one of the things I did was at one, one night of the week, I would set aside and we would go into either Bracebridge or Huntsville, one or the other, and we would go door to door and we would knock on the door and this is what I tell them to do. They knock on the door in pairs and the person opened the door, and they say, hi, I'm Mike and John from uh, NBC, we're at the Summit Bible College, and we're just going around and asking people uh, just their view on life and God, and wondering if we could ask you a question. Now, seven out of 10 of the people that answered the door say, sure, go ahead. 30% of them would shut the door and say, no thanks. They'd move on. They'd put the sand off their sandals and move on. They, so they would go on. And so the, but most 70% said, sure, go ahead and ask the question. This was the question they would ask. If you were to die tonight, and I always told them, after you say that phrase, stop and say, now, I'm not saying you're going to die, and I hope you don't die. But if you were to die tonight, 
and you face God, and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Here was the most, by far, the most common answer. Well, that was a good question. Um, I don't know, I guess I'd say uh, I tried my best. Uh, I tried to help people, and I didn't do too too many bad things. I didn't murder anyone. Well, that was the most common, that statement, those three statements put together. I didn't, as if that's the only thing God, you you didn't murder anyone? Oh, you're in. You're in. Jesus says, if your heart's not right with God, you're not right with God. And let me just stop here and say, if you're watching or you're here, and you haven't, resolved your sin issue before God, then your heart's not right with God. The whole purpose of Jesus coming to this world and dying on the cross was to take our place, to pay for our sin. That's why we celebrated communion. We we remembered his body that was on the cross for us. He took our place. And his blood that was shed for us He paid the price of our sin by giving his life for our life so that we could have reconciliation and forgiveness with God and could have his place with God. We could be fully sons and daughters of God. But a person must choose. You, I, must choose to admit our sin before God Believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fully pays for my sin and then choose to surrender my life to him or, the words we're using, follow him. So I just want to encourage you, if you've never made that decision, you can make that right now by praying, God, yeah, I admit. Hey, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me. And now I choose to follow Jesus. That is a decision every person must make. Otherwise, you will give account for your sin and your life on your own. When I stand before, nobody ever asked me that. Well, what if you died? What would God say to you? I never got that question back. But this is what I would say. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be in God's presence. But Jesus took my place on the cross, and I put my faith in him, and I follow him. And in that day when I stand before God, Jesus is going to come aside, push me behind him, and say, I've paid for all Ed's sins. And God would say, account cleared, you're in. Will Jesus be standing between you and God, or will you be standing and dealing with your sin yourself? There's not a lot of hope that way. Okay, so I didn't murder anybody. So Jesus goes on. Very interesting what he says. Therefore, since it matters what's in your heart, therefore, if you are, then this is the practical side now. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. So you're coming to church to worship and you, you go, oh, no, you know what? Uh, I, I've sinned against somebody. You know, the words I said at work or the way I lied about somebody or the way I stole or the way I treated my children or my spouse. 
the attitude I had toward that person. Jesus says, when that comes to your mind, immediately, not, not oh yeah, I gotta get to that someday. He says, immediately, you, t- you leave your gift at the altar. Don't even walk in the doors. Stop, turn around, make the phone call, or get in your car and go see the person, whatever you have to do. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and worship. That's how much it matters to God. He does not accept our worship when we bear that evil in our heart towards somebody and have not reconciled it. When we have sinned against somebody and have not reconciled it. And so just think about that for a moment, the implications of that for a moment. For some of us, we've been going through years of worship that means nothing to God. You've been coming here for years and it means nothing to God. No, no, no. I mean it. Because all God sees is you're just putting on a show. You're keeping it up front. You didn't murder anybody as if that's enough for me that you didn't murder anybody. Your heart is broken in regard to that relationship and you don't care enough about me or my law to go and at least attempt to fix it. I want to hear from you. Oh, Ed, you're being so unfair. Am I? Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will knock it out until you have paid every last penny. And he's not talking about... So Jesus, let me back up. Jesus is using a, uh, a legal recourse of the day. They all understood it. If you borrow money from somebody and you had a schedule to pay and you weren't paying back and finally they got frustrated with you, they would take you to, to court and the judge, if they determined that, yes, you did indeed owe this person and you have not paid them back like you agreed upon, then the, the, the judge would say, now you go sell everything you need to sell to pay this person back. And oh, by the way, if you sell everything, your house, your animals, your business, if you sell it all and it still doesn't pay the debt back, then you're going to debtor's prison and you would be put in prison. The point would be that surely and hopefully one of your family members or a friend would would pay the rest that was owed and get you out of debtor's prison. But if you did not pay every penny you owed that person, you stayed in prison. Why is Jesus teaching this? Because he's saying, if you hold in your heart and you do not deal with the sin in your heart toward other people, I will hold it against you until you go. Hmm. But Jesus is so loving. Yes, he is. He's also very righteous. And he expects more of us than just not murdering people. This is a good place to stop. I think there's enough conviction for the day. Because I'm speaking this and I'm, I've failed in this too. And here's, this, here's the grace in Jesus' words. If you have offended somebody, so he, Jesus assumes we're going to do it. It's going to happen because we're broken, sinful people. We make mistakes and we hurt people. He assumes, he's going, but I'll give you a way to deal with it. As I treated you on the cross, you go treat others. Go deal with it. 
They may not want to work through it. That's their problem. I'll deal with them. That's their story. But you, you go. You obey me. So three quick things I would say. If you have not forgiven somebody of something, yeah, this passage doesn't leave you room to hold bitterness and unforgiveness toward anybody. You cannot, you can't be right with God and be unforgiving toward somebody else. Yes, but Ed, you don't know what they did to me. There are some grievous wounds that people have inflicted on others. I understand that. And I'm not saying it would be easy, and I'm not saying that it would be uh, a walk in the park, and I'm not saying it happens overnight. In fact, some of the forgiveness issues I've had have taken me a long time to work through, but I was committed to work through them, and that's all Jesus asked. You go start dealing with it. Take one step at a time. And if you have unforgiveness toward a person, do not try to justify it because of the amount of hurt that they did to you because there's two words that stand in testimony against that line of thinking. The two words are the cross. And so you can go to the cross and find the hope and the help of Jesus to deal with the pain that has been inflicted on your life. And I know it isn't fair. It wasn't fair that Jesus was dying on the cross for me. But your way out to be righteous before God is to deal with any issues of unforgiveness you have in your heart. It may take time. It may take bringing other people in. But if you're serious about walking with God and following him, obeying him, you've got to take that step. Second thing I would say, I'm sure in your life you have enemies. People you just don't like. And people that just don't like you. And while there's no issue between you that needs to be resolved, it's just you guys just don't get along really well. What does Jesus say? Look at the heart. Pray for those people. And act kindly toward them. Oh, by the way, you want to show Jesus in your workplace? Pray for the people you don't get along with and find ways to be kind. I know, it's just plain stupid, isn't it? But it's the way. It's the way you deal with people you don't get along with. That's not my way. My way is to build up a case in my mind of how terrible they are, speak bad about them, undercut them. You know, that's my way. Jesus' way is, no, pray for them. Talk to the Father about them and then find ways to be kind toward them. So who's the person? The family, the boss, the employee that you need to pray for and then find ways to be kind to kind word of encouragement, little gift, do a favor, help them in something, loving them. So forgiveness comes out of this passage, your enemies comes out of this passage, and then resolution and reconciliation comes out of this passage. Uh, if you have, so um, forgiveness involves people sinned against you, reconciliation is when you've sinned against other people. Jesus is pretty clear on Matthew chapter 18 how we deal with it. If I've realized, oh, I've sinned against so-and-so, the Holy Spirit brought their name up today, you go, oh, no, I've sinned against that person. Well, then Jesus is pretty clear. Just go to them one-on-one. Try to work it out. Confess your sin to them. 
See if you can be reconciled. If you walk away from that and it's not working, then bring somebody else. Bring two other people with you. People that that person respects, not just your friends. Yeah, I brought my mom and my dad. Wondering if you'd talk to the three of us. That's called a setup. We bring two others that that person respects as well and try to help you work through it. And if that doesn't work, bring it to the church. Let the elders become part of the process. That's what Jesus said. You want to be right with God? Then you need to reconcile with people you've hurt. You need to initiate it. You need to go. Or a person that's offended you. You need to go. Because to God, it matters your relationship with other people. It matters to him. It's unrighteous that we hold bitterness and anger and hatred and malice in our hearts towards somebody, and God says you need to deal with it. You're the salt. You're the light. Obey me. When we kind of live like that toward other people, do you not think that has an impact on their lives and on other people that are watching as you humble yourself and obey what God has to say and seek reconciliation with other people that have hurt you, seek kindness toward those that are your enemy. Do you not think that is light in the eyes of people that are struggling with the weight of unforgiveness, struggling with the weight of broken relationships, struggling with people that they hate? Do you not think when they see your good works as you obey Jesus that that does not have an effect upon them? I'm telling you, when you obey Jesus, people see Jesus. It's the way it works. Let's pray. God, this is a heavy, heavy area of our lives, truth. It's painful. It stirs up fear. It stirs up shame. It stirs up guilt. But you're greater than all those things. The cross totally replaces those things if we are willing to surrender and follow you in the way. And so I pray that through this series, but even today, that you'll raise us up to follow you in the way that you're calling us to live. And I just declare uh, over this body that I struggle with some of these things that you are saying, and so I recognize others will struggle too. We are strugglers. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to be right, not only with our Father, but with one another through the cross. Help us to love one another. Help us to obey the true intent of the law. I pray in Jesus' name.